I don't know how it evolved. We were standing somewhere and there's one of the rooms and there's no furniture. It was just literally the castle. And it was a massive room with this ceiling that seemed to go on forever. And hanging down was this crazy big chandelier, like one of those you see in the movies. Like it looked about eight, 10 feet in diameter, just hanging there, but like wood and it had candles. It wasn't like uh, electric or anything. It was the candle one. And I was like, Damn, as a kid, you always see movies like people swinging across those things. So I thought, huh, now's my moment to shine. And I can't remember what I was standing on. I just jumped off of it and landed on the chandelier and swung across the room. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. Mike Arts here. Super honored to be introducing Corey Bayers for the 50th episode of Baby Got Backstory. I've got a long, long history with Corey, and... uh, I can honestly sit here today knowing uh, I'd be on a much different path if I hadn't been lucky enough to get to work, work with Corey through a couple different companies he's been at. So for me, as I, as I thought about our journey, I realized how much that I was at a kind of a pivotal point of my career in life. I was freelancing, but we hadn't started our agency yet. We were starting a family, but didn't have a family yet. Like it was this, it was this big moment in my life of, I think, stepping into a whole new level of growing up, building a business, building a family when I crossed paths with Corey. And so as I look back on that, I feel like it was, uh, the stars aligned to have uh, a mentor, a client and a friend like Corey taught me so much that I still I think it's a big part of the foundation of what we do today. So I first met Corey when we got hired. Actually, I got hired to be the snowboard team manager for Heli Hansen. Corey at that time was working for Heli in the Seattle office, heading up marketing. Uh, He got the opportunity to move over to Oslo for Heli Hansen, moved his family over there. They had their third child while in Norway and we were constantly going back and forth and, and not only getting to, you know, go over there and, and work with him, but I, I watched him raise his family in a foreign country. And I should say, while Corey was working in the U.S., he's a Canadian. So he was already an expat. So it was a really, really amazing time. And what I learned from Corey was that he, he was super calculated and organized when it came to budgets and expectations and just just real clear vision of where the marketing of Heli Hansen was going. And I think sometimes that stifles creativity, but when you have someone who has creative vision and formulaic execution with budgets, that's, I think, what is so hard to find these days. We work with a lot of different clients and, um, you know, some are very wild style and you go out and get stuff done. But it's it's rare when you find someone that sort of puts that whole package together and has a ton of fun doing it, rallies the teams around them. People are excited to go work extra hard. And then Corey's also got the other side that you kind of got to watch out for that might not come out till uh, later night. But let's just say that uh, Corey's liver was built and designed in Canada. And uh, it's, a, it's a powerful machine that you should, you should just know what you're getting into. <laughs> we've seen, we've seen some weaker folk not, not survive. So yeah, just this great, great journey learning from Corey, him really giving us an ability to expand the work we did with Heli, which was at the time we were launching the public works, our agency, it, it all fell into place. And I can sit here probably 15 years later, knowing that it, it was a huge chapter of my life with so much fun and education. And, uh, I owe, I owe a ton of that to Corey. So it was cool to see him make the decision um, eventually to, to leave Heli Hansen, go to Lululemon, which was a move back to Canada. Um, you know, Lulu at the time was, you know, I think a brand that so many people were envious of watching. It seemed like they were just on top of the world. 
And Corey, Corey had a great gig there and his family was back in Canada. He was closer to solid quality hockey, which I know is a big part of his family's um, being. And uh, but then he got this opportunity to go work with Patagonia and head up their marketing, which I think for any of us who love the outdoor industry or the outdoors or companies that take a stand and do really hard things. I mean, Patagonia is at the, at the pinnacle. So now Corey sits in this position of, I mean, he's, he's in a position now that's going to change the world, you know, what he does, what that company does, what his team can do. It's a profound change. So couldn't be more proud of him and thankful for the time that we got together. So I'm here with Corey Bears, the Vice President of Global Marketing at Patagonia. Corey, what does a Vice President of Global Marketing at Patagonia do? <laughs> that sounds pretty official. Wow, I'm all grown up. <laughs> it's about time, right? Um, exactly. My mom always wanted me to grow up someday. Um, wow, it's a very official title. Basically, I have the great fortune of um, leading an amazing group of people at Patagonia in Ventura, California, and in our offices around the world, communicating with the brands up. We tell stories, you know. Um, I work with, um, you know, creative teams, marketing teams, strategy teams, operational teams, you know, lead books and film, basically all all the brand communication, non-graphics non, um, non on product, but any other PR communications Branding, marketing, advertising comes comes out of my team, and I work you know super collaboratively with uh, people in Ventura, the business units, um, with you know marketers and market. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of great collaboration. Yes, that's kind of what I do. I, I, I tell stories about a, a pretty amazing brand. Right. Wow, I mean, that that sounds like the job I want when I grow up. So uh, you're, you, <laughs> you you got it. You got it pretty good. So gonna hop right into it, like. What's awesome about working at Patagonia? Like why, you know, why do you love it and, and what's so great about it? Uh, God, I, I think I said this to someone the other day. Someone asked me, they said, you what? Well, you know, uh, is Patagonia as real as it seems? Like as value-based? Like is, is there any bullshit there? Like what goes on? And sincerely, I think you see it's real. I mean – from, um, you know, right through the organization, from the, the, the Schwinnard family, all the way through our board and our teams, um, the conversations are real. It's values-based. You know, it's, it's very, it's on a mission and it's a serious mission. And it's not just, you know, hey, let's put a mission up there, but we're really out to sell product. It's no, it's not like that at all. You know, we truly are in business to save our home planet and that's, I've never been at a place anywhere with such conviction of mission and such um, discipline um, of staying on task. You know, I mean, Yvonne and uh, the family um, have, you know, charted waters over the last decades that it's just been consistent. You know, they've learned, they've been transparent, um, they figured stuff out, they've led, they've, they've done everything. So it's, it's really... That's the best part about working here. Um, conversations are still as hard as they'd be at any other brand, and, and the work is as hard as it is at any other brand. But the purpose and the mission is real, and that's that's what gets me up every day. So it's cool. Yeah, and you know, at least for me, and and I think so many people. I mean, Patagonia is the gold standard. It's the brand that I think of that I admire the most for all the reasons that you just laid out. And I think at least in my memory, I'm sure there were other ones, but in my memory, it was really the first purpose driven brand. It was really the first values driven brand where I think even as a consumer, I looked at it and I said, wow, they have my values. They believe what I believe. Um, in addition to sort of this ability to transport me to a place of adventure and make me feel adventurous and make me feel like I'm, I'm part of the outdoors. So, you know, I think we see that. And I work in a, a space now, and you, and you might get this question all the time as well. I mean, everyone now is purpose-driven. Everyone now is values-driven. And I don't say that to be sort of flippant. You, you almost have to be, you know, it's like, it's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the world is expecting it, but not everybody has that same sort of success. Not everybody is able to hold to true North the way Patagonia does. So like, 
like in your opinion, like what do you think the secret is or what do you think the why is how has Patagonia been so good at that and been able to turn that into both a a company that is is mission and purpose driven that's changing the world and is is a pretty good business? Yeah, that's that's a meaty question. I, you know, I, I originally thought when I interviewed at Patagonia, I, I sat down with Yvonne Chouinard, uh, one of the founders. And I asked him, I said, what does success look in five years? Like, what do you want from me? Like, what is, what does Patagonia look like in five years? How do I know if I'm succeeding in your eyes? Like, are, are we moving forward? And I was sitting there with the, the CEO at the time, Rose, and the head of HR, Dean, and, and Yvonne, he just kind of, in his great way, you know, looked down at his hands and, you know, rubbed his hands a little bit and looked down at his feet and said, I don't know, we may be smaller. And the head of HR just went white, just pale. <laughs> and, and I said, that's the perfect answer. And what I mean by that is they don't really give a shit about sales. We're not numbers driven. They've had some hard years in the past, I'm sure, you know, over the decades and some good years. And I'm sure that'll continue. But the success for them has, and Patagonia in general, has never been so, has never solely rests on a sales figure or growth target. Success looks like, you know, getting more activists to sign up, to sign a petition, to, you know, um, defend a local watershed, to um, change a supply chain uh, completely on its head, to organic cotton only. Um, I mean, those are huge success factors, regardless of a sales figure. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone is just all other brands are just looking at a sales figure, but it does give us a different frame of reference of what success looks like. Um, and I think that's that's helped us weather a lot of different storms over the over the decades. So that mentality about truly wanting to do good and and being up for that change and and measuring that change um, has been such a central tenant to who we are that um, I think that's our success metric. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and we've talked a little bit about what's so great about Patagonia, but what's really hard about what you do there, and what don't we see? What don't we know? Like, and what do you wish like maybe people did know about the the how hard it is, of, or the the hard part of what you're you're doing? I get yeah, the it's it's a bit of a double edged sword on this one. Um, the hardest part is because we're seen as a leadership brand, we're held to a very high standard, which which is right. And, and to me, this is where you get the double edge to it. We're held to a high standard, but we're also open to, you know, like anyone else, even more so, though, we've got if we if we step out of line, we got a target like people let us know. And that can be really hard when you're doing, you know, making the number up nine out of 10 things right or nine out of 15 things right. And you do one thing wrong and you get hammered for it. You're like, damn, but. There's all this other stuff we're doing good. Yeah, we dropped the ball on that one, but look at the goodness. But I look at it the other on the other side and go, you know what? <clears throat> it's a good way to be, though. You know, our community that that cares and um, we care holds us to that standard, and that standard allows us to to keep moving on and keep you know pushing ourselves. Um, so while it does get hard and frustrating sometimes, it. Uh, it does pull us forward. It's a nice standard to be held to. Well, now you've got me curious because, you know, I firmly believe that we we often grow through those hard times when we're challenged or when there's criticism. So mm -hmm. can, can you recall a moment that, that kind of falls into the parameters you just described where maybe you did a mess, misstep or you got called out and and how that went and, and how you learned from that and then how you were able to to kind of, t you know, return back to that high standard by through that, mm -hmm. through that learning moment. Yeah. You know, looking at, as an example, um, you know, I look at, um, let's see, DWR, you know, um, water repellent finish on, on garments. We are switching to be non-fluorocarbon. So uh, not as toxic in that there have been other brands that have been quicker because we look at, you know, what are the options? So by switching from one, one formula to another, there's impact. And it's not a marketing play to just switch and say, hey, we're PFC free or, or, or whatever. It's okay, well, what, what chemistry are you using now? And what are the effects on the environment now? And because there are ramifications and we've spent some time looking at the solves and we don't want to jump to a solve that is just 
um, makes us look good or feel good when we know there is also an environmental impact um, to a lot of these options out there. Um, so working with our supply chain, working with our partners to to get that right formulation. So in some instances, we've been you know criticized for going slowly, um, and rightfully so, and I think that's fine. But you know people need to know that we really examine all all solutions and we play through the impacts and those impacts could be on the environment those impacts could be on performance and durability uh, lifetime value of the garment itself its performance of the garment um, other harmful effects so we we kind of play through everything we're very much a you know a measure twice a cut once uh, mentality and when we go we go but a lot of times you know our communities doesn't don't see that so we can be called out and that's and that's rightfully so, but sometimes it's a little you know a little hard. But it's all good. They're keeping us to that standard. But DWR is one of the examples that we're looking at right now. We have, we are switching, and in in subsequent seasons, we're going to be completely flipped, and it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, and, and that's really interesting to think about. You know, when that you have to have all these considerations, and I think of. Yvonne's kind of famous story about you know shifting to organic cotton and things like that, <laughs> and and you know. Was that as that, that the way that story goes was just like, it was a decision. It was done. It was, th- it, the, 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 it was going to ruin the company, but you know, he didn't care and he was just going to move forward because it was the right thing to do. Is, is there a little uh, hyperbole to that story? Is that the way it happened? Uh, that's pretty much how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he walked in and uh, said, you got 18 months, you know, figure it out. And, you know, switching to organic cotton um, at the time. Um, and I'm going from story. I wasn't at Patagonia at the time because this is going back, I believe, to the early 90s. Could be 94, 96, somewhere in there. But, yeah, and, you know, taking people out to the farms um, and showing them the difference between employees at Patagonia, at Inventura, and showing the difference between an organic farm and a, a chemical-based, um, you know, fertilizer and, and run farm. And having people actually see that difference in the impact that that's having. Yeah, that's, that's very, there's a lot of truth to that story. It's, it's completely true. Um, and similar with this DWR as well, we're looking at, you know, timelines on there where we're going to be flipping it. Um, and we have that conversation with, um, about a, a lot of different things. Like, you know, we're always, um, pushing ourselves to a timeline, like, okay, how quickly, what is the impact? And, and really want to make sure we're careful in solution, but at the same time, Trying to run as quick as we can. Um, one of the expressions I had heard: um, "Go as quick as you can, but take the time you need." And that's been, I think, really paramount in a lot of our decision making. Like we're going to run as quick as we can, turn over every stone, do whatever we can, but make sure we're also examining the impacts and then going. I mean, that part of that story that kind of blows my mind that like I haven't really thought much about. And being a storyteller, and you just you know shared in the opening. I mean, your your whole job is being a storyteller. Is this idea of bringing the employees to see the different farms and to get their buy in? And, you know, and I don't really see that very often. I think we're so consumed with external storytelling that we don't mm-hmm. spend a ton of time on this internal kind of component, and so. Like, how important is that to you in your role? I mean, are you spending a lot of time thinking about how do we sell? And sell is kind of the wrong word, but how do we like mm-hmm. show? How do we get people to see our point of view? Because when you just shared that that story about going to the farms, I was like, oh my God, like, how could you work at Patagonia and not be bought into the shift, even though it seems scary, even though it seems big, if you're given that opportunity to insert yourself in the story? Yeah, no, it's... It's something that we can always do more of, and I, and and you're right. It's not selling to the, the 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 teams. It's more, you know, making sure they're engaged. We have a very very incredible um, group of people in in all of our offices that are they're there for the right reason. They're hungry. They're curious. They're creative. Um, so it doesn't take much to share the story and go, hey, this is what we're working on to get people really really excited, which is pretty incredible. And, and I'm trying to think back of, you know, other places that it, it goes really, it goes really quickly. Like a story gets picked up. You're like, amazing. Okay. How do we make it happen? And people getting behind it. And there's, there's very little having to sell someone in a meeting. Like this is the reason why we're doing it. It's more like, Hey, this is the reason why we're doing it. Here's some of the background. And you just see people light up like, Oh man, that's cool. That is, Oh yeah, let's do it. If anything, we're on the other side of that. Um, 
as I always say, uh, you know, we want to solve so many problems. We do a lot and sometimes too much. And we get, a, we, get, uh, we get underwater a little bit when it comes to either storytelling or some of the things we're taking on. We've got a lot of energy. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. I think I, maybe it'll come up later, but I shared with you my, my uh, sort of thought, my, how I always view uh, the, the, the decision room, the marketing room at Patagonia. And everyone's like, you know, can we talk about something else maybe other than saving the planet or public lands or water rights or, you know, all these things. So, you know, and so thanks for sharing that, Corey. What, you know, I'd like to know is, Look, you've had this amazing career, and I want to talk a little bit about that. And but, like, when you were a young boy and growing up in Canada, were were you thinking like, "Hey, I'm going to be in the outdoor industry. I'm going to be in marketing someday. I might work in marketing for some big, you know, outdoor brand." No, no, not at all. I mean, I grew up in Montreal and grew up in the city um luckily we could we spent summers in vermont and upstate new york on lake champlain so for yeah all summer basically i'd be in a tent in a sleeping bag for months on end and that was amazing and i always you know that was my connection to the outdoors and made me fall in love with the outdoors and the sports that i did but it probably wasn't until college where um i was an accounting major which makes me laugh right now and um, I'd gotten into skiing and snow sports and there, I wanted, it <laughs> sounds bad, but I wanted to find a way to get to the mountains cheaper. And me and some buddies just started, you know, ski club. And it was a way for us to get, okay, we'll get a bus. We'll get a bunch of people on there. And if we get enough people, we'll get a few free tickets and then we can ride for free. We just got to work it and organize it. And, and we're not getting paid, but we're going to get free lift tickets. And I just kind of got into that. And we used to get, you know, organized, try to do weeklies in, in the winter, like busloads of students, you know, down to like, uh, you know, JP, Smuggler's Notch, you know, Mount Sutton, all these places and um, just have fun with it. And I really fell in love with the, uh, I guess, the, the entrepreneurial side, the business side, the marketing side. And um, some of my friends I met not long ago, they actually joked, they're like, yeah, we weren't sure if you were going to graduate or just be a ski bomb, but they're like, we're pretty impressed that you actually graduated. You stuck around. Um, but I just, I fell in love with the, I guess the, call it the business of sport or that interaction or that blurring of the lines really between, you know, fun, uh, passion and, and sport and, and work. And then so right away, I think after my first semester, I switched from accounting into marketing um, and just, you know, enjoyed the creative side of it. And, and the entrepreneurial side of it, really. And so that was kind of the, the foray into, into it. And when I really started to think about, hey, this could, be, this could be a place I'd love to work in. And it was like, oh, am I going to work in like, you know, ski resort, backcountry lodge? I thought about guiding, um, you know, do I go to the guiding school? Do I want to do that? So there's a lot of options, but I knew I wanted to be um, um, tied to the outdoor sports and the outdoor community in some way uh, that I could apply um, my little bit of knowledge and passion to to be part of the community. Yeah, and I would think you know this, but but maybe you don't. Uh, Mike Arts, who introduced you for this episode, um, and also connected us so that we were able to to have this interview. Did you know he had an exact same sort of like I'll call it a racket going on, where he was putting together a ski club, selling lift tickets, like getting people to the <laughs> mountain so he could go for free. I didn't know that, and I've known Mike for years. <laughs> Exactly. Almost verbatim, almost verbatim to what you just shared. It was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, did they do that together? That sounded like, like almost, you know, identical. Although funny enough, I know he went to UVM. So yeah, we went that far. I was in Montreal, but no, I didn't know that story. No, that's <laughs> funny. That's how he got his start as well. So, you know, and at that time, why don't you give us like a little sense of what the outdoor landscape looked like, you know, um, you know, I think it was a lot different than it is today. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was definitely a lot. It was more fringe. It was more, um, very, a lot fewer brands. The space wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I won't say co-opted, but it wasn't as mainstream. <clears throat> you know, it was uh, a little more isolation, different kind of pursuit, um, smaller uh, group, smaller community at the time. So, yeah, it was a little different in that re regard. 
obviously, you know, product and, and technology uh, has has just exploded in terms of what's possible now. But the community was a lot smaller and and you were more on the fringe. It wasn't as mainstream to see someone, you saw someone walking in, in you know, um, a ski jacket or a waterproof jacket or even hiking boots in the city. Either thought they were a student or, uh, you know, a traveler or something like that, like, you know, a European traveler coming through, backpacking through. Um, whereas now it's it's very commonplace. I mean, it's 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 part of it's part of the culture. It is is a mainstream um, activities and pursuits. So yeah, it's, it's grown immensely, which has had some great upside to it. I mean, um, it's been a, amazing to tie it back to Patagonia, though. But um, you know, something that you know people aren't going to protect the land unless they they have an attachment to it, love it, know it, care about it, or have recreated you know on it. And by having more people involved in the sport, it's only going to get more people involved in defending the places we love. So it's, it's been super positive in that regard. Yeah. And I think at, at that time, there was this really interesting birth of this intersection of outdoor and lifestyle, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that where people were, you know, I think, you know, that was about the time I was starting to see, you know, accountants and business people <laughs> wearing Patagonia, uh, clothing, uh, you know, around town and stuff like that. And prior to that, uh, we didn't really, we didn't really see a lot of that. So at this time, you know, you've, you've made this decision. You're going to apply yourself. You're into marketing. You, you see the, at least the world that you want to be a part of. Uh, you know, that it's like, Hey, there's this cool thing with like being outside and being in, in marketing and, and, and business business and, and, and being an entrepreneur. So what'd you do with that? Where, where'd you go from after you left school? Uh, <laughs> my girlfriend and I went and cycled around Europe for almost a year. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. Um, had Patagonia gear at the time, obviously. And then when we came back, we knew we wanted to live kind of in the West, the mountains. We wanted to, to, to explore the Western side of, of Canada and, and the U S a lot more. And so we, we moved to Vancouver and, the we actually used uh, mountain bikes with slicks on them to tour we didn't use a regular touring bike and it was a canadian brand called rocky mountain bicycle and when we moved back to to, to montreal basically packed up the car sold everything not that we had a lot basically had skis snowboard and stuff threw it on the car and then drove, drove out to vancouver and um you know applied we both applied for jobs sending photos from this trip to Rocky Mountain Bicycle, the bicycle uh, place that um, we had bought our bikes from. And my wife got a job there as an accountant. And uh, I would just, you know, hang out, you know, mess around with the bikes. This is early 90s. So mountain biking was relatively young then and kind of got into the sports scene, got into it with a lot of those guys. And um, then eventually I joined Heli Hansen. And I was doing marketing for Helly Hansen in Canada. So that was, you know, their retail and wholesale and, and team and all that stuff. So uh, out of Vancouver. So life was pretty good, actually, starting to see, you know, how I could actually apply um, some of the things I learned and, and, and the passion I had to um, the, the outdoor industry. So that was Helly Hansen was kind of my first outdoor brand that I just threw myself into and, and enjoyed immensely and out of Vancouver, that was. Yeah. And, and when you started with Heli Hansen, what was your role there? I was uh, head of marketing for Canada. Uh, so I was overseeing Canadian marketing. And was that a big, was that a big sort of territory or big deal or was Heli maybe not that big uh, at that you time? You know what? Uh, Heli wasn't, uh, I guess, that huge at the time. And it was a big geographic territory, but not, not a massive role. Um, it was a great role for me to, you know, learn and figure stuff out. I always say it had, it was big enough that I had a budget and, and, and things I could do to get in trouble, but it wasn't so small that I was like, damn, I'd like to do that. Oh, I can't do that. Or I can't do this. It, I had enough latitude and, and it was of, of enough size, enough autonomy that I could kind of mess around, get in trouble, try some different stuff, whether it be events or ads or whatever it was or working with athletes or or in store and things like that so i really i had a, i really enjoyed it a lot it was a lot of fun and then after that i went to do marketing for their mountain sports division out of seattle um so moved the moved the family down to seattle and enjoyed that as well you know just concentrating globally so this is a global role um on mountain sports so ski and snow and, and climb and hike um, and that was that was so much fun. I loved Seattle, loved the Northwest. And uh, the opportunity came up. 
they said, well, you know, we want, would you like to come to Norway and kind of like, you know, market the other categories as well, like be involved in marketing for me and kids and footwear at the time. We've got some other categories and always the adventurous. I was like, hell yeah, I'd love to. Um, so uh, moved over to Oslo, um, Oslo, Norway, and uh, worked for for Heli there, uh, Global, that's their head office, and worked there for, I can't remember, I was there almost four or five years, I guess, in the marketing team there. Just met some amazing people and just what a great culture and what a great country to live in um, and what a great brand. And I learned you know, a lot of dealing with international markets and just other stuff. It was, it was really cool. It was such a great learning curve. Um, heck, I'm still a student. I'm still learning every day, and I love that aspect of it. Um, so now that I'm looking back, I'm thinking, wow, yeah, I enjoyed learning there and there and there. Yeah. So no, it was great. I had, I had a lot of fun. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline, or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. WildStory helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. I think for a lot of marketers, a lot of people in the outdoor industry, that would have been a, a job of a lifetime. That would have been it. That would have been like, hey, I'm going to stay with Heli. I'm going to do, you know, just, uh, I've got, I've got it good. I've got it really good. And yet an, another role came, came your way. And, and, and did you go right from Helly Hansen to Lululemon? I did. But uh, the reason why um, I left Norway was, it was for personal reasons. My dad, my parents are a little older and my dad, I was on a photo shoot in Northern Norway um, with Mark Gallup at the time, a good old photographer friend. And uh, my dad, my parents live in British Columbia and in the interior, a small town called Kamloops. And my dad had a heart attack. And it took me like, as soon as I found out I was on the shoot, it took me, I don't know, 30, 40 hours to get home, get back to British Columbia to see him. And I had kids at the time, two young, two young girls. Um, and I was just like, oh, you know, I want them to know their grandparents. I, I got to get home. So I, I went back to Nor back to Norway after my dad was feeling better, and it was it was tough. I but I you know the guys at Heli were great. I just said, look, I really I I got to get home. You know, it, there's a time for family. As much as I love I love the team here and I love Norway, um, I got to I got to get back and, and take care of my, my my family and let them see, let my parents you know um, see their kids, their grandkids. Sorry, and so I I went back. Um, and they were great. And Heli was like, hey, do you want to stay on and like consult for a little bit out of Vancouver, like helping the transition? I'm like, I'd love to. That's great. So my thought of coming back to Vancouver was, you know, maybe I could talk to a few brands um, and kind of string a bit of a marketing consulting thing together, um, you know, whatever that looks like. So I moved back to Vancouver, landed on like July the 2nd. So I'm hitting the pavement, talking to some old friends. And one of my buddies was like, hey, you know, you should talk to uh, Lululemon. And I was like, oh, the, the little yoga brand over on West 4th. He's like, yeah, Corey, you've been out of Canada a little while. They're a little bigger now. <laughs> I said, okay. And this was, this was 2009. Um, and I've been out of the country since early 2000. So not quite nine years, but close to it. So 2009. And I approached them and said, hey, you know, here's what I'm looking to do. Here's my background. I'd love to, you know, see if you, you have anything, you know, do you need any help? And um, the person there at the time was like, we don't, but we've got a brand role. Do you want to, you know, be brand manager here? You know, we're, we're figuring some stuff out. And at the time, they were still relatively small and growing. And I was like, sure, this is kind of cool really loved everyone I met and what they stood for and just every conversation I had, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm in. Um, so that's how, you know, I just transitioned, uh, you know, 
by mid-August, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm at Lulu now. So I was at Lululemon for was it, almost seven years. Yeah, seven years. So from August 09, um, I started at Lulu overseeing brand and brand manager role and then um, oversaw the creative. So head of uh, brand creative, uh, VP of brand creative for, for several years. Yeah. And so for folks that may not know, like what, what is a, a brand manager and, you know, maybe in the context of working at Lulu just to make it real. And then also like head of creative, like, like what does that, what does that role do and what are your responsibilities? And, and again, maybe like maybe some of the things that are, that we don't know, like what's tough about it. Yeah. Well, brand manager, very similar to, you know, marketing manager, um, the difference at Lululemon, uh, between a, I guess a typical marketing manager role, um, and why it was a bit more of a brand manager type role was a very decentralized model. Very, very interesting in that, you know, a lot of, uh, they create locally, whether it's events and their stores and stuff like that. So it was, it wasn't typical, you know, Hey, here's, here's what we're doing in the month of August or whatever. This is your store window and, and do that. It was more teaching them about brand, about our brand, about the Lululemon brand. What does that mean? What are our values? And having them go and create locally, which was really cool um, and such a such a great uh, a great model. Um, and then when I was, you know, uh, well, before I jump to the creative side of it, you'd ask, you know, what were some of the challenges? And, and one of the interesting things, you know, Lululemon had, at least at the time and, and for my tenure there, and I would think so still now, you know, an appetite for risk. And um, they knew that, you know, I'm making up, but out of 10 windows that a store would put out, one would be absolutely amazing or two or three, whatever, they'd have absolutely amazing windows. And a bunch of them would be kind of mediocre. It is what it is. And you can't hit it out of the park every month. And then one or two would get us in trouble, meaning they'd be like, oof, that's an offensive one. Or, you know, their media would be involved or something would get messy. Be like, oh, yeah, okay. But there was a tolerance for that. And it was an exciting environment to, to, to be creative within. And then I went to, after that, overseeing the creative team and working with them, another talented bunch of, you know, designers, photographers, film, there, there was a bit of film and video, you know, at Lululemon at the time. Um, and that was a different role. That was like purely creative with a bit of a strategy to it. But the creative side of it was really guiding that, you know, um, what's the look, the look and feel of Lululemon through those years Everything from, you know, print ads to the website to how we shoot, how we tell story, the emails that go out. So all the creative communication at the time, um, I had the great fortune of working with, you know, a great team there to, to bring that to life. And that was a lot of fun too. learn again, learned a lot there. <laughs> yeah. And the way I hear the story, and please correct me if I've got this wrong, is that you're at Lulu and you're head of creative and things are good. You're, you're happy. You're, you're, you're doing your thing and you get approached by, by the, 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 the big, the big white whale, right? By Patagonia, the, I was going to say, you know, like I, I was going to say Detroit Red, Red Wings, but you know, that, I think that's from my, like more, more of my memory than the reality these days, but you're, <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're approached by, you know, the preeminent outdoor, you know, like you said, the gold standard high level, uh, Patagonia. Is that is that the way it happened? Yeah, it was actually interesting in that when I was still in Norway and I was looking to move back uh, to Canada, I had reached out to a few people, like different, you know, recruiters, like, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm heading back to Canada uh, for family reasons. You know, I'd, I'd love to talk with you guys about something. I got talking with this person, Deanna, at a recruiting agency. We had a, a great conversation and she's like, you know what, there's nothing at Patagonia right now. But I'll, I'll definitely keep you in mind. And she was working, I think it was in Portland, with a, a recruiting firm. And I was just kind of getting my name out because I was coming back to the U.S. and been out of the country for quite a while and didn't think anything of it. And then went to Lulu and literally, well, I guess it was eight, probably a total of eight years later, I get a call from her. I was like, oh, hey, Deanna, we had not talked in forever. I'm like, wow, great. What's going on? She's like, well... We, you know, we're looking for a head of marketing. Um, are you interested? I still had, I remember our conversation from a few years ago. I'm like, yeah, it was eight years ago um, about, you know, just a random conversation we had. So she reached out and I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. I'd love to have a conversation with Patagonia for sure. 
Um, and it just kind of started there, really. Uh, you know, I met with Rose, CEO at the time, and 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 some of the people here, and just loved every interaction, every conversation I had. So it was it was a tough decision actually to leave to leave Vancouver to leave Lululemon. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was it's it's been great. It's been great almost five years now. Yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine it was a tough decision. I mean, first of all, moving from Seattle, where you've established your home and you and you and you're loving it, and I was it Seattle, Vancouver. Vancouver? Vancouver, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver yeah. But yeah, you're still you're still moving to uh, Southern California. That's a big move, and I could sense perhaps in the question that you referenced in the beginning of the show when you asked, you know, well, well how do I know I'm successful? I mean, I would have to think it might be intimidating coming into a company that's so highly revered, like, like you know, and certainly at a, at a high position. I mean, my thought is, is like, I wouldn't want to screw that up. You know, I don't want to be the one that like, <laughs> I don't want to be the one that like, uh, uh, starts to put, uh, you know, cracks in this hull of this, of this, uh, ship. So, I mean, were you intimidated? Was it, was it a little, uh, scary? Um, I don't know if it was scary. I mean, uh, all through the eighties, you know, as skiing and in the outdoors, I was just so immersed in their catalogs and, and the imagery and the brand. And I'd read, let my people go surfing that it, it didn't feel distant. It didn't feel like this is another entity. It felt like something I knew, something I was passionate about, something i felt close to in some weird way, you know, because I'd been so uh, involved uh, or, or absorbing um, everything they had been doing for decades, really, like I said, since the eighties the that it didn't, it didn't seem like such a leap. And the conversations were very real and just honest and expectations were, are, you know, about saving the home planet, which I know that sounds massive and it is massive, but it's, it, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's not something that really crossed my mind. It was, I guess, another adventure, a way to learn. And in, in, in a really weird way, it felt like kind of coming home because of my, they were one of the brands that I, or the first brand I fell in love with, you know, when I was into the outdoors or, or getting into it and, and getting into quality um, apparel and and what spoke to me imagery wise. Um so yeah, it was it was a bit of a full circle in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So you're there now. You're you're overseeing a great team. Like, what's next for Corey? Uh, I don't know. Keep having fun. Keep learning. Um, you know, just keep growing. Really, keep. I keep talking about learning. I, I, I'm kind of the, the eternal student, but there's something that I discovered a long time ago that I really like coaching. You know, um, and not to jump around, but I remember like in the 90s, one of my first jobs, they actually had us do this Myers-Briggs test. And it's a personality test, right? And you go through the whole thing and answer these questions and the report comes back. And I was, you know, mid-20s at the time. And one of the things on there, it says, you you really enjoy coaching. You'd be a great coach. And I never thought of that. Like, really? A coach? Like, when I played team sports, I never wanted to be the coach or anything like that, but I just discovered like, okay, I want to be a coach. Really? Eh, okay. I was in my mid twenties. I kind of put it aside. And then, you know, when I was leaving Norway, uh, the team there, they put together uh, this little photo book and it was just pictures of me with them through my time there. So like on photo shoots, behind the scenes, on the mountain, you know, in, in, in the cafe, in, in Moss, in Norway, at the, at the office, or just a bunch of stuff. And, and the thing that just broke me was they said, thanks for being our coach. And I was just like, shook. I was like, oh my God, I guess, yeah, that's what I love doing. I, I like that. And I hadn't thought about that for about 10 years. And that just nailed it again. And so I, en I enjoy that aspect of being able to, to help coach and impart some of my knowledge and, you know, on, on the next generation of marketers and creatives and, and people that are going to change the industry way more and change the world way more than I, I have or will. Um, so I do enjoy that. Um, so I don't really look too far what's next. I kind of try to stay in the present about keep learning on what I'm doing and keep keep coaching uh, my team and keep seeing people grow. Cause honestly, if you ask me, what was the thing I'm, I'm most stoked about over the last 10 years, I'm not going to talk about a campaign. I'm not going to talk about creative. I'm going to talk about relationships. 
people I met, someone like Mike, you know, Mike Arts and the great work we've done. I'm going to talk about, you know, uh, a young designer out of school that was, I believe, an intern at the time when I joined Lou Lemon. On my left, she was, you know, an art director and on her way to be a creative director, just a brilliant creative mind. Um, those are things I remember. I don't remember, you know, some some campaign that went out that we may have felt good about at the time. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what, what I'm looking at right now. Oh, and it sounds like you've been such an influence to a, a lot of different people, uh, just even how you, you know, described, you know, your involvement in coaching and your, your influence in, uh, you know, coaching the next generation of marketers. But like, who's been the most influential person in your life? Wow, tough question. I don't know if there's been just one. I think through throughout my journey, there's there's always been someone along the way that has really inspired me. You know, we're talking about Mike. Mike has always, always inspired me with his just creativity, his drive, his sense of purpose, um, ability to have fun. Um, I've I've looked up to Mike for a long time. Um, I look at you know some ambassadors we've I've had the pleasure of working with. You know, when I was at Heli, there was one gentleman, Joran Krupp, um, who unfortunately uh, passed away in a climbing accident uh, several years ago. But such an influential person and his perspective on life and and what he accomplished, you know, was amazing. I look at right now someone like Yvonne Chouinard, who's simply iconic, the real deal, you know, learning from him and hearing his little bits of wisdom. So yeah, it's it's kind of a bunch of people all along the way. I've always you know, it hasn't been one mentor. It's been a bunch of uh, a series of mentors and and even if they weren't full mentors, just learning like a snippet from here or or someone teaching me something and going, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I never looked at it that way, you know, from even days at Lululemon and, and uh, yoga philosophy and just exploring yoga um, and things like that. that I learned along the way from, you know, some of the um, some of the coaching we got there um, was it was incredible. Yeah, I can't pick just one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. And, you know, I, I think it's uh, just uh, there's some synchronicity in that you mentioned Mike. Uh, Mike was on the podcast. So those of you listening, you've heard us reference him a couple of times. You can go ahead and listen to his episode and learn more about Mike. But uh, Mike also had sent in a question through the Baby Got Backstory sort of email channels of uh, a question that he would like to ask you. Uh, so are you you ready for it? Um, as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Let's, let's see, let's see. <laughs> there was a time when we, as Heli Hansen, rented out a castle in Austria. It was maybe one of the best fashion shows, parties I've ever seen go down. I, I highly recommend renting a castle to anyone listening. Later that night, while leaving, after copious amounts of enjoying the castle, Corey pulled off a pretty amazing gymnastics stunt, and I'm, I was really hoping he'd maybe share share what went down. Oh, jeez! I knew Mike would talk about something like that. It is, it is, it was a castle in Austria, and it's really, it's pretty crazy. It's funny. I was at a sales meeting um, pre-COVID in in Europe, um, our European team there, and it was in Italy, and what they had rented out. Like, it's incredible what you can actually buildings and areas you can do events in in Europe always blow my mind and this was a castle in in Austria and we were launching a new season I can't even remember what season it was and uh yeah it was just a lot of fun it was really well done and we stayed around a big group we had a bunch of the skiers and snowboarders there um and just had a really good time and I don't know how it evolved. We were standing somewhere and there's one of the rooms and there's no furniture. It was just literally the castle. And it was a massive room with this ceiling that seemed to go on forever. And hanging down was this crazy big chandelier, like one of those you see in the movies. Like it looked about, I don't know, eight, 10 feet in diameter, just hanging there, but like wood and it had candles. It wasn't like uh, electric or anything. It was the candle one. And I was like, damn, as a kid, you always see movies like people swinging across those things. So I thought, huh, that was my moment to shine. And I can't remember what I was standing on. I just jumped off of it, 
and landed on the chandelier and swung across the room. And I believe there was a couple of bottles of elixir in my goggle pockets on the inside of my jacket that fell out as well when I was swinging. And Mike liked that story. But I just swung on that thing. And after I got off, Mike was like, you do realize that thing is is over a couple hundred years old. You could have killed yourself. (laughs) And it's like, that's the last thing I was thinking. It was, uh, I was was six years old again. I wanted to fly on that thing, just like you saw in the movies, man. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing that. And I am just so (laughs) sad. I'm so sad that like, I like, you know, didn't, didn't have the opportunity to work (laughs) in it. I think I alluded with the other question, if you get into it, but uh, we'll see if he'll tell that one. If he won't, I have pictures. I don't think Corey holds back on much. There's a, I think one of our favorite ones was the, a most, you talk about like in snowboarding or skiing, like overshooting the landing. Ian Foreman and Mark Gallup and I were all heading over to Corey's house in Oslo to have dinner. And he told us just to stop and pick up sushi on the way at Alex Sushi, which is like, it's the Nobu of Oslo. So really good, stupid expensive. Like you'd probably buy a small house in Kansas for what dinner costs, right? So (laughs) in the snowboarding terms, if it had been a 60 foot tabletop, I'd say Corey overshot the landing on the order by uh, 120 feet, but maybe he can tell that story of, I still kind of wonder what happened to all that sushi. Hopefully he fed the entire neighborhood. I think Corey might have taught me about the Canadian Caesar and Crown Royal. Like those are two very big staples still in my life. I think a lot of that resulted from uh, the same trip that a game we created called Trail Ball was launched. I remember our bar tab at the end of that week at Chatter Creek. I still have that also, but the line items are something like 196 Crown Royals, like 126 Caesars more kokanees than like you could have floated a small tugboat in the amount of kokanees we went through. But that was an epic trip that uh, a lot of learning and creativity came out of and even some good photos. So that's the thing with Corey. Corey's pretty put up, put together for, he's like one of those guys that could actually probably run for political office. He's a dark horse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I always I always struggle with the sushi orders, you know, and I'm I'm got I've gotten better in my old age, but I always just struggle with quantity. And these guys are coming over and they're hungry and I don't want them to starve. So I went to the, the restaurant during the day. I said, Look, do you guys deliver? I'm not living that far, but I'd like to place an order and do you deliver? And they're like, No, sorry, we don't deliver. I'm like, Okay, well, I'm gonna order now, I'll pay now, and my buddies will come by in a taxi, they'll pick it up and they're gonna bring it to my house, no problem. And I still remember, Mike, when I opened the door, it was him and Gallup and Ian, and they're holding the sushi. It literally looked like a pallet of it. And they're all smiling and laughing. And I'm like, what's wrong? They go, well, we got a message from the owner of the restaurant. I'm like, oh, geez, what would I do? do? My card bounce? Like, what happened? He goes, no, his message to you is, here's the number you should call. We'll do you. What is it? You order like it's an for an army. We will deliver anywhere for you. And here's my personal number. So <laughs> I kind of, yeah, I overshot the landing. I think it was something like, I don't know, $4,000 of sushi for four people. But it was, yeah. I, my wife still reminds me that to this day, whenever I order sushi, I get the look. So, yeah, I, I really overshot the landing. I get the look. Yeah. Even my kids, even my kids know the story and they give me the look too. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's serving you well. You know, you're still telling that story today. <laughs> So <laughs> has there ever been a moment like at, at Patagonia or, or any time during your career where you just felt like, like scared or like, you know, something wasn't going to work out the way you had hoped? Oh yeah. What day of the week is it? Yeah. I mean, shit. a lot of times. Yeah. Because you know, whatever you, oh, as marketers or as creatives, you know, whatever you're unleashing, kind of waiting for a reaction sometimes so there's some stuff you can put out there and go oh boy this is going to be interesting how this one's received and sometimes it's received well and sometimes it's not or yeah there's always a, an element of of risk or uncertainty i mean you do what you can 
you work through it, you work with your, your teams. And then, but once it's into the, the, the big wide open, yeah, there's an element on, on a lot of campaigns or a lot of things that I've put out over the years that you're like, okay, how's it going to be received? Yeah. That feeling doesn't go away. I think it's a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. And so kind of in that same kind of ilk, like what are you struggling with most right now? Uh, right now struggling. Um, let's see. Uh, can I say the election? <laughs> you can say anything you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, um, electing climate, uh, climate leaders, people are going to care for this planet, you know, true, trying to implement some government change. And, and that's something that, uh, we're very passionate about. Um, and yeah, the environment. So that's, that's, that's a big thing right now. And obviously we're a couple weeks away from, election day and um, hoping that we can, uh, as a community, elect climate leaders that are going to help protect and, um, you know, keep these lands safe so we can we can continue to enjoy them and, and our children and grandchildren and everyone can enjoy them. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing on my mind right now. Yeah. And you mentioned that you, you really enjoy coaching and that you enjoy mentoring that next generation of marketers and creatives. With that in mind, like, what's one piece of advice that you'd give them? Uh, this is like the, the uh, letter back to yourself when you're 18 or something like that. Kind of. I, I always think or I think about that sometimes. Like, what could I tell myself um, or, or someone starting out? And I would get, say, you know what? Don't, don't worry about being perfect. Like, don't, don't chase perfection. Just, just go and do it and try it and figure it out. Don't be, don't be too concerned about how, how you look or let ego get in the way. Just, just dive in and figure stuff out. There's going to be great moments. There's going to be hard moments. Um, that doesn't change. That just goes with you. Um, but yeah, don't be apprehensive and don't worry about perfection. Just, just kind of dive in and be okay with it. And, and don't let, don't let your ego rule you. What's one of your favorite memories of Corey? Uh, yeah, I was thinking about this driving in today and uh, there's so many, so many good memories, but uh, I, I think an awesome one was we were at, we were in Aspen for the X games and you know, we're watching all the athletes compete and it's just such a great weekend. You're surrounded by all your industry friends. You're in Aspen, which is awesome just on its own. But it was just hammering snow. And I believe we were supposed to fly out of Aspen to go directly to the SIA trade show in Vegas. And I think the flight got canceled. And then we just quickly made the decision that it just wasn't worth like sitting at the airport probably getting get canceled again or whatever so we just stayed and that monday when pretty much the the circus of the x games cleared out of town we went to highlands and hiked highlands bowl and had a i don't know it must have been a two or three foot deep powder day and it's just that feeling of you just had this great weekend but it was chaos and then the next thing we end it with just just us hiking the bowl and just smashing some serious pow. And then we got in the rental car, drove straight to Vegas and checked into the hotel still in our snowboard gear. And I, I think we ended up getting in like half a day later than we would have. But getting that that kind of bonus day with that sharing it with friends and getting powder like that. I mean, that's really takes it right back to why we all got into this whole thing. In addition to the question that you asked earlier, is there something else that you've always wanted to know from Corey that maybe uh, there's been like this mystery or this thing outstanding that uh, either professionally or personally you wanted to, to ask him and, and know the answer to? I don't know. There's, there's so much. Luckily, we've had some good time to sit down together. And luckily, a couple of weeks ago, I ended up out in California and got to stop in and spend a night at Corey's new place and kind of, you know, just see the family. I think it's been several years. Everyone was so, so grown up. His oldest is in college. I mean, it's crazy. I like last time I saw them, there were kids this time they were adults and, uh, and just cool to see him settled into the whole new Patagonia thing. But I don't know. I think, I think what's interesting, so interesting to me is that he was able to move through uh, a couple different great companies, but those also required international moves with a family. And I think that would probably 
stop other people from taking on that challenge. And yeah, so I don't know if I, if I had some one question, it'd probably be like the mindset of making big decisions like that with a family and trying to figure out what the right move is. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny.